Thank you, guys. Open your Bibles uh, this morning to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. If you are new here, um, we are walking through the book of Romans. And one of the great things about walking through books of the Bible is that the preacher can't avoid difficult text. And um, when you come to Romans 9... Uh, you see just uh, uh, an incredibly, uh, in some ways it's a difficult text, it's, a, it's an incredibly deep text, but you know, I find that a lot of times those are the very scriptures that we most need to hear is the ones that we tend to avoid, the ones that we just tend to kind of screen off to the side because they, they are sometimes more difficult to understand and, and because there's a certain amount of mystery that is there. A lot of times, that's, that's exactly what we need to hear. God put these, every part of God's word is there for a reason, right? So let's dig into Romans 9. I've entitled this message, Let God Be God. Let God Be God. Romans chapter 9, and we're going to look um, at verses 14. Actually, we're going to finish up with verse 26 this morning. Romans 9, and beginning with verse 14. Let me ask you to stand in honor of God's word as we prepare to, to read it and dig into it together. Paul begins here in verse 14 with a question. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very reason I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. May God bless his word to our understanding this morning. You can be seated. Father, we do thank you so much for your word. And Lord, we give ourselves to you this morning as the potter. You are our sovereign king. You are in charge. You rule and reign. And this passage 
is a humbling passage. And we need to be reminded that we are the clay and that you are the potter. We need to be reminded that we are creatures and that you are the creator and that your ways are higher than our ways and your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. But Lord, we know that you are good and we know that you are merciful and we know that all power and authority is yours and so we pray that you would work in our lives during this hour. Lord, we need you. Humble us now. Give us just a spirit of, of humble receptivity to you. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark Dever tells about a time when he was uh, teaching a seminary class. And this particular class was on the attributes of God. And he had made a, a statement about God that one of the students in the class sort of uh, found objectionable. And the student's name was Bill. And so Bill raised his hand and he said, well, I like to think of God rather differently. And Dever says, for several minutes, Bill painted for us a picture of a friendly deity. He liked to think of God as being wise but not meddling compassionate but never overpowering, ever so resourceful but never interrupting. This, said Bill in conclusion, is how I like to think of God. To which the teacher responded, well, thank you, Bill, for telling us so much about yourself, but we're concerned to know what God is really like and not simply about our own desires. What is God really like? Is he simply a projection of who we think he ought to be. J.B. Phillips once wrote a book called Your God is Too Small. Well, if the God that we worship is simply a projection of our own desires of who we think he should be, then he's going to be way, way, way too small. What we discover in the Bible is a God who is not simply a, a, a bigger uh, smarter uh, projection of ourselves, but who is in a class by himself. So what do we see about God in this great text? First of all, we see here something about God's mercy and compassion. Let's take a look at verses 14 through 16. Paul says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So what, what leads into verse 14 is the story of Jacob and Esau that, that Paul told about in, in the verses that immediately preceded. And if you weren't here last week, um, we'll kind of go over it again, or even if you were here, we'll kind of do a refresher. So um, the story of Jacob and Esau is you've got these two twin boys, um, and so uh, uh, Esau is technically older because he, he comes out first, and according to Hebrew tradition, the line of God's promise would have been continued through the older son, which was Esau. But in this case, God reverses the order and God says, no, we're not going to go by tradition here. Um, it is through Jacob, through the younger son, that my line of promise is going to be fulfilled. 
And, and Paul finishes in verse 13 by quoting from Malachi 1, where God says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, if you were here last week, we talked about the fact that, that hate is a Hebrew idiom for choice. And so it's not saying that God felt uh, emotional hatred for Esau. In fact, he blessed Esau in all kinds of ways. But he said, my, my line of promise is going to be fulfilled through Jacob. So uh, it's, it's simply a way of saying that, that you know, God chose Jacob as the son through whom the line of promise is going to be fulfilled, and he did not choose Esau. But Paul is fully aware of the fact that the very notion of God making sovereign choices, and he tells us in the text that precedes us that that choice of Jacob was made before they were, these twins were even born. Paul is fully aware that the very notion of God making sovereign choices is a blow to human pride. And so that's what leads into the question here that we see at the beginning of verse 14 because he knows many people ask it. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Well, the very notion of there being any injustice on God's part is utterly repugnant to Paul. And so he says at the end of verse 14, by no means, the Greek is meganoita, which means absolutely not. Of course not. There could never be injustice on God's part. And then he says in verse 15, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now, this is actually a quote from Exodus 33:19, And the situation there is that Moses has asked God, show me your glory. And God says, well, you can't see my full glory and live. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to kind of put you in the cleft of a rock and sort of shield you. And I'm going to pass by, and you're, I'm going to enable you to sort of see the, the backside of my glory. Well, that was an incredibly merciful thing on God's part to reveal himself to Moses in that way. But what makes it really mind-blowing is when you consider what has just happened in Exodus 32. In Exodus 32, Moses has come down from Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments, and what does he find? <laughs> the people have fashioned this golden calf, this idol, and they're worshiping this golden calf that they fashioned with their own hands, and, and the text strongly suggests there was all kinds of, of sexual immorality that was going on. It was basically just sort of a, a, a drunken pagan orgy that was taking place when Moses comes down from Mount Sinai. Now, now just, just imagine this, okay? Think about this. Because what has God just done for the people? They were slaves in Egypt, and they cried out to God for mercy. God came to them. God delivered them from slavery in Egypt in a, in a miraculous kind of a way. He parted the Red Sea for them to go across on dry land. 
He had been with them every step of the way. The promised land was before them. God had given them a leader in Moses, and now God has given them his, his commandments for them to, to flourish. I mean, they have been on the receiving end of so much undeserved grace. And, 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 and what are they doing? When Moses comes down from Mount Sinai, I mean, it was unspeakably awful. And so, if God had given them what they deserved, they would have been wiped out. I mean, God would have said, hey, we're starting over. This deal is done. You're all gone. But instead, you know, the Bible says that the God is, is gracious and merciful, he's slow to anger, he's abounding in steadfast love. And so what does he do? In chapter 33, he graciously reveals himself to Moses and it's a sign that he, despite their wickedness, that he has, he has not abandoned his people. He's showing them undeserved mercy. One of my favorite um, stories of undeserved mercy in, in literature is in uh, the French novelist Victor Hugo's uh, novel Les Miserables. And, and in the story, uh, there's a character, Jean Valjean, uh, who is sentenced to years in prison for some small petty crime. And, and in prison, he becomes this angry and bittered uh, man. And so when he gets out of prison, uh, there's a very kind uh, bishop, a pastor, um, who, who lets, he, he's home, John Valjean is homeless. And so the bishop gives him a place to stay, allows him to stay at, stay at his house, and, and, uh, and, he, and he feeds him and gives him a comfortable place to spend the night. And Jean Valjean responds to the bishop's kindness by getting up early in the morning and taking off with his silver. <laughs> steals his silver and, and takes off. Well, later in the day, he's caught red-handed with the silver. And the police haul him back to the, the bishop's house and knock on the door, and they're just waiting for the bishop to come out and give testimony against him. But instead, the bishop opens the door, and he says to Jean Valjean, Oh, I'm so glad you've come back, because you left the best part here. I meant to give you the candlesticks as well. They're the most valuable. Here, take them. I, I, give, you, I give you these as well. And the police back off. And that act of, of outrageous grace and mercy utterly changes Jean Valjean's life. But listen, did the bishop owe Jean Valjean mercy? Of course not. Of course not. Does God owe any of us sinners mercy? Does he owe any of us salvation? No. And we looked at this quote last week, but I think it bears repeating. It's this quote by John Stott. Stott says, the wonder is not that some are saved and others not, but that anybody is saved at all. For we deserve nothing at God's hand but judgment. If we receive what we deserve, which is judgment, or if we receive what we do not deserve, which is mercy, in neither case is God unjust. If therefore anybody is lost, the blame is theirs, but if anybody is saved, the credit is God's. God's mercy and compassion. The second thing that we see here is God's 
purposeful working for good. God's purposeful working for good. Let's check out verses 17 and 18. Verses 17 and 18. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Now, we're in Exodus, once again. Um, Paul's got Exodus on his mind. And this time, we're at the lead up to God's deliverance of the people from, from slavery. So what, what happens there? God tells Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh, who's enslaving these people, my people, and I want you to go to Pharaoh and say, God says, let my people go. <laughs> so what happens? <laughs> Moses goes before Pharaoh, and he says, the Lord says, let my people go. <laughs> and what does Pharaoh say? He says, they're not going anywhere. And then what happens? God says, I'm good. if you don't let my people go, I'm going to afflict you with plagues. And so plague after plague after plague after plague comes. And, and before each plague, what happens? Moses goes before Pharaoh and he says, listen, if you don't let God's people go, this is going to happen. This plague is going to come. But, but what does Pharaoh do? He's just utterly resistant and, and stubborn. And the expression that is used again and again is that his heart was hardened. Now there are times in the text when it says Pharaoh hardened his own heart, and there are times when it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So how do we, how do we understand this? Well, do you remember in Romans 1 when uh, Paul talks about sort of the, the human race's descent into sin, into depravity, um, and, and it says that, you know, <laughs> they're without excuse. God has revealed himself to them. Uh, he, he, he can be plainly seen, um, but yet uh, people suppress the truth in unrighteousness and continued just to plunge more and more and more deeply into sin. And then there's this expression that we see over and over again in Romans 1. It says that God gave them up. He gave them up to follow their own, their, own, uh, their own sin, right? In other words, you know, if we say to God long enough, I don't want you, God will say, I'll give you what you want. Go your own way. Now, is there, is there any unfairness in that whatsoever? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And when you think about Pharaoh, he's not a neutral character. This is a cruel tyrant who has oppressed people and enslaved them for years. And, and even after that, he is given opportunity after opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to repent, and he will not. Is there anything unfair about God saying, okay, Go your own way. Any injustice there? Absolutely not. But Paul knows that there's yet another question that kind of lurks in the background of, of all this, and it's this. Why in some cases 
like Pharaoh, for instance, does God say, go your own way, allows, allows people to kind of persist in the hardness of their heart, you know, and just kind of gives them over to that and says, okay, have it your way, go your own way. Why in some cases like Pharaoh does he do that? But in other cases, like for instance, Paul, who was a hard-hearted guy and killing Christians and imprisoning them and all kinds of things. Why in other cases like, like, like Paul's does, does God just intervene and appear on the Damascus road and, and utterly turn someone's heart? And, and in the background of all this is the question, because he's talking about a Jewish rejection of Jesus and the remnant of saved Jews that God has preserved, that the question that's kind of going on is, okay, well, you know, God is saving these Gentiles and he saved this remnant of Jews and he's intervened in their lives and yet there are others that he's kind of allowing to go their own way. Why, why does God allow some to, to persist in their hardness of hearts and yet in the lives of others, he intervenes and gives them a new heart? And that seems to be kind of what's behind the question here that we see in verse 19. Look at verse 19 and following. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? Now, at this point, <clears throat> we want Paul to make this really easy for us. <laughs> we, we, we want Paul at this point, hey, Paul, give us some, some little pat, simple answer to this. And Paul says, here's your answer. God is God, and you're not. Verses 20 and 21. But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Wow. You know, there's a scene in C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe in which the, the kids in the story are learning about Aslan. Aslan is the lion who represents Jesus in the story. And so these kids are, are hearing about, about Aslan for the, for the first time. And uh, there's a character named Mr. Beaver who's trying to describe to them what, what Aslan is like. And he says this, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he safe? Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king. And brothers and sisters, we have to learn to rest in the fact that God is the king and we're not. And he is good all the time. But if you are looking for a tame little domesticated God that you can control, you're going to find something entirely different in the Bible. J.D. Greer uh, has written a, a book called, um, called Not God Enough, Why Your Small God Leads to Big Problems. And he tells about watching a talk show, <clears throat> and these two people are debating uh, a moral issue in our culture. 
And, uh, and, and, and one person, to her credit, uh, kept going back. She tried to keep going back to what the Bible says about uh, that issue. And uh, the, other, the other person uh, who was supposed to represent the, the free thinker um, uh, kept saying, well, well, my Jesus would never say that. And my Jesus would, would never do that. And J.D. says, you know, I just want to pick up something and throw it at the TV and say, you know, you don't get your own personal Jesus. And J.D. Greer says, says this. He says, God is not ours. He is his own. He's not a salad bar where we take the items we have an appetite for and leave the others. He's not the Burger King God where you can have him your way or a Build-A-Bear God where you assemble the deity you like best. No. God is the potter and we're the clay and instead of questioning the right of the potter to be the potter, we would do well to place ourselves in the potter's hand. Place your life in the potter's hand and say, mold me, make me. You're the king. Your ways are higher than my ways. Your thoughts are higher than my ways. And you are all powerful and you are sovereign and you are good and you have shown me your love in Christ. And I give you my life. Look at verse 22 and following. Paul says, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Now, we're not going to linger here long because we're going to deal with this more, especially when we get to chapter 11. But in chapter 11, what we're going to see is that God is actually using, that Paul is saying God is using all of this Jewish rejection of the Messiah to kind of open the door to Gentiles. And then what God is going to do is that he's going to use this Gentile acceptance to bring more Jewish people back to himself. And so God is at work, just like he was at work, it, through Pharaoh's stubborn, hard heart. What did God do? His hard heart became the context, the backdrop for this incredible miracle that God was going to do to display his power and his fame and his salvation to, to the ends of the earth, right? Listen, sometimes if we look back on our own lives, if we walk with the Lord for any amount of time, we can look back on certain things in our own lives, things that at the time just, just utterly, I mean, we had no answers. There was just pure painful. We could, not, we could not figure out what God was up to. And at times we just questioned him and said, God, what are you doing? But then at some point down the road, we can look back and we can see how God was 
taking maybe what, what, what the enemy meant for evil, what other people meant for evil. Sometimes he was taking even our, our, own, our own sins and failures and, and God was gonna take all of that and turn it and use it for ultimate good in our lives and for the glory of his name. Verses 25 and 26. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. Now this is a beautiful prophecy that we see in Hosea. And it's a prophecy of the fact that God is, God is about building this worldwide family. And so, when you think about people who were called, got people that were referred to as not my people, it would be hard to imagine anybody that was more, uh, could be said that they were not God's people, any more than a bunch of, you know, idol-worshiping, immoral, pagan Gentiles. And yet, this is a prophecy that God is gonna take those very people, those very people who are called not my people, the very people who seem so incredibly far from God in every way, that God is gonna take those very people. And, and he's, gonna say, he's saying those who are called not my people will be called my people and they will be sons of the living God. I'm going to, I'm going to adopt them as my own and bring them into my family. Because see, here's the thing. Just like we can reduce the size of God, we also have a tendency to reduce the mission of God and to reduce what God is capable of doing in the lives of people. There may be people in your own life that seem so far from God and you're burdened for them. You know, it could be a family member or a, a friend or someone that you go to school with and they just like, they just seem like they are so spiritually clueless. I mean, they're just out there. They, they just seem like, how could, they, how could they ever be saved? Could you begin to think of them not just, not just as who they currently are, but who they could be? If God were to get a hold of their lives? But how does he do that? How does God work? He works through his people. He works through you and me and through our love and through our prayers and through our sharing the gospel with them over time. Don't underestimate what he can do. Don't reduce what he can do. When you think about those who are called not my people who are gonna be adopted into the family of God. I mean, think about unreached people groups. There are still thousands of them, thousands of unreached people groups that have, that have little or no access to the gospel, that have never even heard of the name of Jesus, and that are imprisoned by you know, all kinds of false religions and things. And, 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 and you, you, we look at people like that and think, how in the world, how, how, can, how, can, they, how can they ever you know, go from being imprisoned prison by Islam or whatever it is to, to being followers of Jesus. Oh friends, don't underestimate what God can do 
Because God, God is, 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 is big enough and strong enough to take people. Uh, he has, and he can turn hearts. But again, he does that through the proclamation of the gospel. He does that through his people, which is the very place that Paul is headed next. At the end of chapter 9 and in chapter 10, it's all about the mission that we have been called to as his people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your grace and your mercy. We thank you that instead of giving us what we deserved, that you gave Jesus for us. Lord, if we got what we deserved, we would get nothing but a hammer. And instead, we have a Savior who took the hammer on our behalf, whose hands and feet were, were hammered, nailed to a cross for us. And so we have been on the receiving end as believers of so much undeserved mercy. And so Lord, help us to go forth and to treat other people with undeserved grace. May grace flow from our lives. May, may the message of your grace in the gospel be shared freely from our lips. Lord, give us, give us boldness, give us love for people to share the gospel. As we just continue to pray, if you're here today, without Christ, he loves you. He's proven his love for you by giving his life for you. He's been raised from the dead. He reigns as king and he invites each of us to come, come to him. God has put you in this room today, right now. There's still opportunity, come to him. God is giving you this day. He's giving you this opportunity. Do not spurn him. Do not turn away. Don't harden your heart. Come to Christ. And so, Father, we lift up this time of invitation to you. We pray that you would work in our hearts and lives right now for your glory's sake. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're gonna stand and sing a song of invitation. If you're here today and you want to talk with someone about a relationship with Jesus, we would love to do that with you. If you're here today and God's speaking to you about saying, I want to be part of this church family, we would love to talk with you about that. There's a need in your life for prayer. We would love to pray with you. Our pastors are here for you during this time. We'll be here for you after the service um, today. Let's stand together as we sing.